Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Well, we've got a great show for you this week. First, we'll hear from Professor J. Scott Miller about the recent transit of the sun by the planet Mercury. And then finally, we'll hear from our guest contributor, Bryony Timothée-Rivat, with her essay about the imposter syndrome. So first, let's hear from Professor J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College in Maysville, Kentucky, who's going to tell us about a rare astronomical event that occurred last month. It was November 11, 2019, when the planet Mercury passed directly between the Earth and the Sun in such a way that we could actually see it. We'll post a couple videos showing the Mercury transit on our SoundCloud page and our Facebook page, but first let's just hear about this great astronomical event. Scott here. On Monday, November 11th, the planet Mercury passed between us and the Sun. This is referred to as a transit of Mercury and is quite rare. One expects to see a transit of Mercury about 13 times a century. By comparison, Venus, which is closer to us, can be seen to transit the Sun in pairs of transits about 8 years apart that are then separated by either 105 or 121 years. The last of these happened in 2004 and the next in 2117, so for now selling for transits of Mercury is a bit more practical. One might wonder why transits of either of the inner planets are so rare. Though the orbits of the planets do lie close to the same plane, in reality they are not. Each orbit is tilted slightly with respect to the others, and each orbit does not intersect the plane of the other orbits in the same line. Finally, the orbital periods are not all synced, so it takes a special set of circumstances to get all the pieces to fall in the right place for us to see one of the inner planets pass directly between us and the Sun, rather than apparently pass above or below its disk from our distance away. It is much like why solar and lunar eclipses are so rare. The Moon's orbit is tilted by about 5 degrees with respect to the Earth's orbit around the Sun. From our vantage point, the Moon and Sun span the same angle in the sky, about half of a degree. More often than not, the Moon passes either above or below the disk of the Sun, or passes above or below the shadow of the Earth. In those cases, no eclipse can happen. But when the alignments are right, we can see the Moon hide the Sun, or hide in the Earth's shadow. And the same is true with the inner planets Mercury and Venus. Quite likely, unless you visited a public event, such as ones that were to be held at the Louisville Geens Science Center or Louisville Science Center, or if you had proper filters left over from the recent solar eclipse event, you didn't notice much. Mercury is not only closest to the sun of the planets, but the smallest of the inner planets, technically the smallest of the official eight planets making up the solar system. So, as a sunlight-blocking object, it doesn't do a good job. But there is a bit of history tied to past transits, which can be just as interesting. Predictions of transits may date back to Johannes Kepler. Kepler provided a mathematical explanation for the structure of the solar system, providing three empirical laws that describe the nature of the orbits of the planets and relationships between their distances from the Sun and orbital periods, for example. 
In the early 1600s, he predicted that both Venus and Mercury would transit the Sun in 1631, an event that would not repeat itself until the year 13,425 A.D. Kepler did not live long enough to experience this event, but others used his predictions to search with the newly invented telescopes of the time to see these individual events. In 1677, Edmund Halley, the same Halley of Comet Halley fame, realized that if distant observers on the Earth simultaneously observed Mercury, it would be possible to detect a parallactic shift when the observations were compared. Parallax occurs for two observers making the same observation of a distant object from two widely separated observation points. The object will appear to be at a slightly different angle when measured from a baseline, and this shift in angle is the parallactic shift. Knowing the length of the baseline separating the two observers and the angular shift due to parallax could yield the distance between Earth and Sun. Parallax is easy to demonstrate using your extended arm and thumb. Close one eye and extend the arm out at full length, sticking the thumb up and covering something beyond with the thumb. If you then close that eye and open the other, the thumb will seem to no longer be covering the distant object. It will have shifted. The angle of that shift is the parallactic angle. Today, radar can be used to get very precise distances between the Earth and other bodies in the solar system, including the Sun. But back when these vast distances were not known, and where things like radar could not have even been dreamed of, watching transits of Mercury and Venus were the means by which some sense of scale might be achieved in terms of planetary distances. Looking to the future, the next transit of Mercury will be November 13, 2032. Again, this simply shows just how rare these celestial shows truly are. If you didn't get to see it, you might check the web. A rare event, even if seen belatedly, can still be a bit special. We'll put a couple links to videos of the Mercury transit on our webpage, but I can tell you now the best images were taken with cameras on NASA's Solar Dynamic Observatory, which has been orbiting the Earth at 22,000 miles for the past nine years. This perspective gave the best view of the sun because you don't get the interference from our atmosphere. I mention this because I'm looking for an excuse to play some music. It was back in April 2011 that the first Space-Earth duet took place. The duet was between NASA astronaut Catherine Coleman, who was circling aboard the International Space Station, and musician Ian Anderson, founder of the rock band called Jethro Tull. They collaborated on this recording that I'm going to play for you. Colonel Katie Coleman is an astronaut and amateur flautist, she had taken several musical instruments up into space with her. She took her flute, a penny whistle, an Irish flute, and another flute given to her by Ian Anderson. She regularly played these instruments on her six-month stay on the International Space Station, which was, at that point, 220 miles above the Earth. Then there's Ian Anderson. He's the lead vocalist, flautist, and guitarist for Jethro Tull which was an extremely successful progressive rock blues jazz band that has been performing for decades starting in the 1960s. Surely every baby boomer remembers Jethro Tull. For this duet, while Colonel Coleman was orbiting Earth in the space station, Ian Anderson was in the city of Perm, Russia, on terra firma, the planet Earth. 
the goal to commemorate 50 years of spaceflight because it was in April of 1961 that cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human to venture into space. The song you're going to hear in this duet is called Bure, which Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull had played back in 1969, the year that the first humans walked on the moon. Ian Anderson, an avid fan of spaceflight, adapted this song from Bach's Suite in E Minor for Lute. I've been wanting to play this iconic and beautiful duet for a while now and realize that it's perfect for this episode of Bench Talk. This week, we're not only discussing space and space flight, but we have a guest contribution from a scientist from the UK, and Ian Anderson is Scottish. So here it is, the first Earth-space duet. Colonel Katie Coleman starts it off with her voice and flute, and then you'll hear from Ian Anderson at the end. Tonight, Ian Anderson and I would like to honor Yuri Gagarin for his brave journey 50 years ago, and we would like to celebrate the role that humans play in the exploration of our universe, past, present, and future, by sharing some music between Earth and space. Colonel Catherine Coleman in the International Space Station. We should remember that today's cosmonauts, scientists and astronauts are still every bit the rocket heroes they were 50 years ago. So from the cultural city of Perm in Russia, let's salute Katie, Dima and Paolo up there in orbit. And of course, the legendary Yuri Gagarin. Go safely. I'm excited about our guest contributor today. It's Bryony Timotei Ravat from the United Kingdom. Now, Ms. Ravat received her Bachelor's of Science degree in Animal Behavior and Welfare from the University of Plymouth in England. Her dissertation topic at Plymouth was on what factors affect rehabilitation success in British wildlife. And then she just very recently received her Master's of Science degree in Animal Behavior and Welfare from Queen's University in Belfast in Northern Ireland. There, her thesis assessed the effect of music on Siamese fighting fish. Ms. Ravad has worked as a wildlife care assistant, a social media expert, and a freelance writer and blogger. And it's her blogs that first attracted my attention. And you can see for yourself, just go to Brinstein Science, a blog for curious minds. Just do an internet search for brinstein.wordpress.com. That's B-R-Y-N 
S-T-E-I-N dot WordPress dot com. And you can check out her stories for yourself. Her stories are great. She's basically doing the same kind of thing that we're trying to do on this radio show. Peruse the primary scientific literature and try to make it come alive for the general public. Well, I'll summarize a couple of her stories right now. One of her earliest blogs was about a paper published in Science back in 2005. It was about the bonds between humans and dogs. Now, these researchers back in 05 looked at the relationship between how long dogs and their owners gazed at each other and their oxytocin levels. Oxytocin is sometimes called the love hormone, and it increases in both the mother and her child when they gaze into each other's eyes. Oxytocin is thought to reflect a strengthened bond between those two people. But Bryony writes about how these scientists did the same kind of research with dogs and their owners, finding a similar sort of relationship. So is oxytocin the reason we love our dogs so much and the reason they love us? And the researchers apparently tried to perform the same sort of experiments with wolf pups that are basically wild animals and human caregivers and they did not find the same relationships. The wolves didn't even gaze into the eyes of the caregivers very much. Miss Ravat discusses the implication of this in her article. What did we actually select for when we domesticated dogs? Did we actually select for this oxytocin feedback loop in the human-dog relationship? Another of Bryony's blogs concerns a phenomenon called gaze-following. Now, gaze following is what we do when we see someone else looking in a specific direction. We shift our gaze into the same direction that somebody else is looking at to see what's going on. But apparently other social animal species do the same sort of thing. But what about the leopard gecko, who's basically a non-social animal, doesn't really live in groups very much? Do they exhibit gaze following? Well, if you want to know the researchers' conclusions and what that tells you about evolution, check out Brinstein's science. But I'll cheat and tell you the bottom line. Yes, the gecko does exhibit gaze following. Another article that Bryony Ravat reviewed was about the ways that live tuna fish can be tagged with an electronic chip so that researchers can track their movements in the open ocean. Another article she reviewed just came out recently. It was about the medicines that we take that we end up excreting in our urine that eventually ends up in oceans and lakes. What effect do these medicines, these chemicals, have on fish? The article she discusses is about a fish called the sea trout smolt, which is a close relative of salmon. And the two medicines they tested were either a sleeping aid or it was a drug for blood pressure. And I won't go into all the details. Check out Bryony's March 2019 blog post for that, except I'll say that yes, one of our medicines did appear to affect the fish's anxiety levels as well as its migratory behaviors. But it kind of depends on whether the fish was still in the lab in a tank or if it was in the open water. Brinstein Science has a blog post about the ability of crows to discern the weight of something that's moving in the wind. And there's another blog about lead levels in scavenging birds like vultures. How about the question of the presence of dogs in nursing homes helping patients with dementia? 
And how does graffiti help reduce accidental death of wildlife in urban areas? Another of her blogs is about whether it's complex and coordinated dancing by male cranes, birds, that improves our likelihood of attracting a mate, or is it the uncoordinated dancing by the male cranes that does a trick? You might be surprised by the answer. Brian E. Ravat's blog also has advice for new college graduates, or how cosmetics can be used more sustainably, and how to reduce anxiety in dogs during firework displays. These are the kind of stories you can read about on Brianstein Science, the blog posts of Bryony Timote Ravat. So a while ago, I asked Bryony to consider contributing to Bench Talk, and fortunately, she agreed. In this week's contribution, Bryony talks about something that's common in a lot of scientists and non-scientists, a lot of us. It's called the imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome could be defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist in people who might actually be quite successful. People who think they're imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a feeling that they're intellectual frauds, that they're in a place where they really shouldn't be even though actually they are up to the task. They just don't feel like they deserve to be in that situation. I know I've experienced this at points in my life, and you might have also. Here is Bryony Ravat's take on the subject of the imposter syndrome. Hiya. So um, this is my first podcast with Dave. I'm a science blogger and freelance writer, and you can find me at brianstein.wordpress.com or on Instagram, my handle is underscore. And my Facebook page is Brianstein Science, and my Twitter is Brian Ravat. So uh, usually I talk about something to do with animals, as that is my main field of study and my passion. However, I'm interested in all things science and academia, and due to the time of year that it is, I thought I'd talk about something a bit different from my normal niche area. So it's November, 5th of November, and a lot of you have probably just started at university as an undergraduate, so you're fresher, settling into your university and your new surroundings. Or you've started in second year, which I think is quite a big jump from first year. Or you're even in your third year or doing a master's or a placement year with theses and projects and really important stuff going on. So some of you may have settled into your new adventures fine and that's really good and I'm proud. However, a few of you may be struggling with feelings of inadequacy. You may feel a bit intimidated about your environment, whether it be old or new. You may be doubting your intelligence or even your right to be there. So, therefore, this episode of the podcast is to give some tips and hopefully make you all feel a bit more confident within yourself. Imposter syndrome is a psychological phenomenon in which people doubt their abilities within the field or establishment that they are in. I also experienced this about this time last year. I've just finished my master's degree in animal behaviour and welfare, so this time last year I was just starting it. When I first started it, it was at Queen's University Belfast and I was so, so excited However, within a week, I really felt that everyone within my course was a lot more intelligent than me. I don't think it helped that I decided to do a master's degree as a kind of impulse decision. i just graduated and I didn't have a job and I couldn't drive. So I kind of panicked and I thought, oh dear, I need to do something. So I moved to Northern Ireland and I did an MSc in animal behaviour and welfare to kind of broaden my research skills and make me more employable. Within two months, I was sat on a plane ready to move into a house I'd never viewed and study at a university I'd never visited. So, I didn't really have much time to think about my decision and what the settling in period would be like. Within a few weeks, I'd started my course, and of course, everyone was so lovely, and my lecturers were really kind and welcoming. But I just remember being in one of my first lectures, 
And we all had to go around in a circle and say our name, our interests, and where we're studying the Masters. And I just panicked. I was hearing everyone go around before me, and they all seemed to know exactly what they wanted to do with really precise plans for the future. I'm not sure if I actually recalled that right, or if it was just my brain creating false memories, but that's how I interpreted everyone's dialogue. And it came to my turn, and all I could think of to say was, I want to get better at research and I like cognition. In my head, that seemed so silly compared to what everyone else had said, and I felt really embarrassed. Like the whole course would think I'm not intelligent. Within a few weeks, we were being taught about complex theories and experimental designs, and although I'd studied the same subject for undergraduate and master's level, I was finding some of it hard to grasp. My undergraduate degree was from Plymouth, and although I loved it and found some amazing friends, at the time, I didn't really think it was a good university compared to Queen's, and I think this kind of reinforced the feelings of inadequacy. I came from a really small modern university and ended up in a red brick Russell Group University. If you don't know, Russell Group universities are those which are highly regarded for their excellent research and teaching methods. So, being someone that had never conducted a proper piece of research in my life, I felt slightly intimidated. And I actually think that this imposter syndrome that had manifested itself in me held me back. I was nervous to get involved in debates and lectures, and getting involved would have actually helped me, because interacting and involving yourself with material helps solidify it. Challenging people's opinions helps you both grow and learn and evolve and bounce off each other, so I felt like I really missed out of that aspect at the start of term. It's really not a nice feeling, and it can make you feel so out of place and awkward. However, you are not alone in your feelings. It's a really common phenomenon and affects people from all different environments and professions. There's been multiple studies in which scientists have discovered that vets, doctors, people in all kinds of profession and walks of life have this strange underlying doubt of their abilities. They put their success down to luck and believe it will crumble at any one second. It can lead to poor performance and burnout and can lead to other ailments such as generalised anxiety disorder. And obviously, no one wants to feel like that. So I've piled together some tips on how to make yourself feel better. Obviously, I'm not a trained psychologist. This is all just objective information. The first step is to admit to how you feel. Obviously, you need to realise you probably have imposter syndrome to overcome imposter syndrome. Try to think logically about how you're feeling. When I realised I was probably slightly in denial about my accomplishments, I was thinking I was stupid. One of my friends said to me, you're in a good university studying a science master's, for God's sake. And then I kind of did some self-reflection and I thought, maybe I am doing better than I thought. So this made me want to combat my feelings. I started a journal on which I wrote things that I'd done that I was proud of. Importantly, they wasn't all academic. I feel like a lot of people in academia, their identity relies heavily on their academic accomplishments, such as journals they've published in and how many people have cited them. For me, it would have been great on my assignments and views on my blog posts. I wanted this journal to be all about my accomplishments that made me a person overall. It was stuff about the gym, when I reached personal bests. I think once I even wrote about a nice dinner I made, which used quite a bit of skill, one was even cutting down on meat. Of course, I still put my grades up there and things my lecturers had said to me, but it showed that I am more than my academic worth. So, even if I did get feelings of imposter syndrome, I could kind of think to myself, so, what if everything at uni is accomplished by luck? I still have all these amazing skills and accomplishments that I could be proud of. Another thing I did was I interacted with the material I was learning at home. I'd engage with reading before lectures and I'd look at the module guides and see how things linked to my undergraduate degree. I know it can seem very enticing to just zone out during lectures if you think I will never ever understand this, but try not to. Take as many notes as you can and consult them later on when it's a bit less fast-paced. If you're feeling bold, you could even ask the lecturers if they can record the lessons and put them online. I find that speech is a lot easier to learn from rather than PowerPoints and old presentations. By doing things like this, I was increasing my confidence and allowing myself to absorb the information. Then, by the next lecture, 
I could use what I'd learned previously to link in my notes, which made me feel less intimidated. Don't shy away from things you haven't succeeded at. Surprisingly, this has really helped my imposter syndrome. Life is about balance. If you fail at something, it's okay. It doesn't mean everything you've achieved so far is a sham. If you can embrace your shortcomings, it'll make you better at reflecting on what you have achieved. It'll also make sure you don't become too arrogant as well, because arrogance is not an enjoyable personality trait to be around, in the workplace, education or at home. Talk to people. When I was at uni, I was really, really lucky to have such a good support system. I was close to a lot of my lecturers. I had a lot of friends from different environments. So, not just my course, I had work friends and friends I'd met out socialising. I also kept in touch with most of my friends from home and, of course, my family. Having such a diverse bunch of people I could talk to really helped me to see other people's points of views about how I was feeling. People on my course could, surprisingly, relate. My family thought I was mad for thinking as such because, obviously, I'm their daughter and they have to think the world of me. And my socialising friends sympathised while we drank Irish pints in a pub garden. I know I'm lucky to have so many different people to talk to, but for those who have a less close-knit support system, you can look for alternative methods of reassurance. You may be able to get counselling for your university or your work, or if this is not the case, you can book privately or get it through your doctors. There's also a lot of applications and websites around that let you talk to trained or untrained persons, which allow you to vent. Sevencups.com and Talkspace.com are two that spring to mind. So, obviously I know there's more tips out there, but these are the ones I specifically utilise myself. I think it's important we take care of ourselves and try to take the pressure off us. No one is perfect, and although sometimes useful, perfectionism can be a really damaging thing to aspire to be. It seems to be a very common phenomenon, especially in certain groups of people, which includes ethnic minorities and women, but there is minimal coverage of imposter syndrome in scientific literature. I did a database search on Web of Science to see if I could find much primary research, and there was only three pages worth of information, which is tiny compared to the hundreds of pages on other ailments such as perfectionism and burnout. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong place, as there are many other database search engines out there, but I really think society as a whole could benefit from some more research about this. So, thanks for listening, and just to reiterate, you are not an imposter and you do belong. Failures and successes. If you found this interesting enough to listen to, my social media is as follows. Brianstein.wordpress.com My Facebook is Brianstein Science, and my Twitter is Bryony Ravat. Thank you for listening. That was British animal behaviorist Bryony Timothée Ravat and her take on the imposture syndrome. If you want to read Bryony's blog posts about animal behavior, animal welfare, and conservation, things like that, you can visit her website at brinstein.wordpress.com. That's B-R-Y-N-S-T-E-I-N dot wordpress dot com. She has a new Instagram account now. Just look for Brinstein Science. That's one word. And if you want to contact her, her email is brianytimote at gmail.com. That's B-R-Y-O-N-Y-T-I-M-O-T-E-I at gmail.com. We'll try to post the links to her web pages on our SoundCloud page and on the Bench Talk Facebook page too, so you can catch it that way also. Thanks to Bryony Timotei Ravat for this contribution, and we hope to feature more of her stories in the future. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. 
if you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. <laughs>